giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the giant robot smashing into other giant robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Lindsay Christensen. And I'm your other host, Chad Pytel. Today, we're joined by Michael Shealy, the founder and CEO of Nurse One One. Michael, thank you for joining us and joining our new startup series. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me. So we, I think, actually, Chad last spoke to you on the podcast. It was almost two years ago, exactly. Long time. (laughs) It feels even longer right now. Yeah, it does. And it was in person in the studio in Boston, too. So that's something. In person? Yeah. Yeah, Remember remember those days? (laughs) Yeah, only 90s kids remember in-person meetings. (laughs) Yeah, unreal. So how have things progressed since we talked back then? You know, when we talked before, you were actually still in stealth mode and you you, you were just hinting at being in sort of the healthcare space as, as the area you were interested in and working on. So since then, you're public and, and, and you've launched. And how has that gone? When did that happen and how have things progressed? Yeah, we launched in September of 2018 and we actually got into the harvard innovation lab uh, where i met my chief medical officer so we had the the fortune of launching from the harvard innovation lab and and using their resources to help with the launch it's gone pretty well i mean you launch with this big great idea that everyone's gonna recognize the problem that you're solving and love the solution and we got sort of a, a mixed bag i think when we launched i think we got a lot of great responses from patients. We got a lot of great responses from nurses. And then it was time to try to fit this thing into the healthcare system. And that's where we sort of had some learnings that we've done over the past year and had to adjust. And and now we're finally starting to break way. But from a high level standpoint, what we've launched is a company called Nurse One One. And what we recognized is that there's a gap between the patient getting information about the concern that they have or the the health scare that they're in the middle of versus knowing where to turn to for care. And so what we've seen is there's a large number of people who are going to the emergency room for conditions that don't need to be seen there. And what we're doing is we're educating patients using the care and, and comfort that only a nurse can provide and educating them into what options they should go to for care. So rather than going to the emergency room for a pink eye, you could do a video visit. You could call your doctor's office. Uh, If you don't have a doctor's office, our nurses will explain why having primary care is important. Uh, There's stuff that you can do at home as well to, to take care of a whole list of things that should never have to go to the doctor's office. And so that's really the premise that we launched with, and it's been a, a great journey ever since. So as you mentioned, one of the challenges that you've tackled in the last year since launch is how you fit into sort of the business of, of healthcare. So is it a consumer product that, you know, as a consumer, I call Nurse One One directly, even if there's no pre-existing relationship or our doctor's offices and that kind of thing contracting with Nurse One One? It's sort of a mix. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that we did before we launched was we, we launched direct to consumer. And that, that is a part of Nurse One One that still exists today where anybody can go to nurse11.com and chat with a nurse. And when you go through that channel, it costs you $12.50 to have that chat. 
the partnerships that we're building now, and, and one notably that we just launched with last month, is allowing patients when they go through those channels to do this for free. And that's the model going forward is we want this to be free for everybody. The mission behind this company is to increase the number of people who have access to the appropriate levels of care and really create a much better experience for people when they do need care, keeping them engaged with the places that they should be engaged with. And so when we build out those partnerships, there's an incentive for different organizations within healthcare to make this free for those patients. And that's really the ultimate goal of the business. It's more of a, a B2B to C type of play than, than a B2C. But that B2C channel will always be open for people coming directly to Nurse 11. And eventually, hopefully, we can figure out a way to make that free for them as well. So can you tell us more about that partnership? So who is that with and, and how did it come together? Yeah, so we launched a partnership with a company called ZocDoc. And so mm-hmm. ZocDoc, I think they may be the largest listing of doctors and specialists that are around in, in the United States. And anybody can go to their website right now, sign up and have a free chat with a nurse. Uh, that partnership came right as the outbreak was starting to happen. And they wanted to figure out a way to engage patients and help them when they're in this time of crisis. And there we were with the product that basically did that. You know, we, we have a product where we have now almost a thousand nurses on our platform chatting with patients, not giving them any treatment. So it's not cannibalizing the primary care offices that were, were on ZocDoc. You know, it, it's more educating patients that whether or not they should go, whether or not they should do a video visit, what they should do during this crisis. Should I go to the emergency room? Because I, I think I have symptoms. What they did is they came to us and said, we want to offer this to anybody who's coming to our website. And they see over a few million patients every single month on their website. And so they created a page off the homepage that said, you know, COVID-19 questions go here. And then what they started to see was this high level of engagement from patients, a lift in the LTV of how many of these patients were eventually booking appointments, going to do video visits, you know, coming back in between each appointment so that they stay engaged with that platform. And that's when they started rolling us out to their homepage. So right now, if you go, we're right in the middle of their homepage. We've been rolled out to their app. And we're also on a whole bunch of their Q&A sites as well, where they get a whole lot of SEO traffic. And so the idea is that they can now convert these patients who are researching on these Q&A pages, have them have a live chat with a nurse, understand what their options are, and then feel much more confident when they do click over back to ZocDoc that they're booking an appointment for the right thing. It's amazing because Nurse 11 almost seems like it was built for the pandemic. It's obviously a, a need that existed long before where, you know, you don't want to go to the emergency room if, if you don't have to, there's an expense there. And then on, on the emergency room side, you know, they want to be seeing the most important cases. And then obviously, in the, the past month, in the past few weeks, that's been magnified to a tremendous degree. Yeah, it's one of these things where we identified a problem that was within this space that happens when people are at a level of high anxiety, when they don't know what to do. The premise behind Nurse 101 actually started from a personal story that my, my wife and I had when our daughter was born and she was born with a heart defect and she had open heart surgery at Boston Children's Hospital. And when we brought our daughter home to be cared for at three months old after having surgery, after being told that she's got a heart defect, 
my wife and I had no idea what to do. And neither one of us are medically trained. And so we had this very heightened level of fear and anxiety. And I think that's what society is all feeling right now is you don't know what to do. And, you know, you're told these are the things to watch out for after surgery. And these are the things to watch out for that might have caused the heart defect. And so we were scared of everything. You know, our daughter would get a temperature of 99 and we wouldn't know what to do. And we would take her to the emergency room. You know, this is our daughter. Like, we're not going to take a risk. Like, of course, we're going to the emergency room. And it turned out we had a friend, Kim, who was a nurse practitioner. And she said, you know, I used to actually work on the floor that your daughter recovered from at Boston Children's Hospital. Just send me a text. Like, stop going online and scaring yourself. Don't just rush to the emergency room. Like, send me a text message and I'll let you know whether or not you should or not. And that was like the greatest experience we had. And that was that was the reason why we launched Nurse One One and started this company. And and Kim is my co-founder and chief nurse practitioner on our, on our platform. And the premise was, how do we scale Kim so that anybody who's at this moment where they have a lot of fear and anxiety has an outlet where they can find out where they should turn to for care, not just to get the insights of where I should turn to, but actually influence me, like gain my trust, listen to my concern, my personal concern. And then from there... When the nurse says, this is something that you don't need to go to the emergency room, I believe it. You know, I trust it. It's a live person that's giving me this recommendation who knows what they're talking about, who is a nurse who happens to be the most trusted profession, not just within healthcare, but in any profession in the United States. I'm going to listen to that. And so we built this product to scale for those type of people. This outbreak is basically everybody feeling that way. Everybody feels stress, anxiety. They don't know what to do. And for that exact same use case, it's even, you know, what do you do when you have a temperature of 99? Like everybody's afraid. And so we did actually build this for that type of use case. So the ZocDoc partnership came about at the start of the pandemic. I imagine that's, you know, it's been good for business in that regard. Sounds a little morose to say, but have there been negative impacts that you've seen on your business or expectations? Yeah, I, you know, I don't think I don't think really much good is coming out of this situation. And I, I think you know the partnership with Zocdoc happened quick because of COVID nineteen. Mm-hmm. But we were looking for these types of partnerships, and we have a lot of really large players that we we're talking to who who also identify that there's this gap within healthcare between getting information and eventually figuring out where you should go for care. Those types of conversations were eventually going to happen. I think it happened faster because of the outbreak. But on the flip side, like, you know, our team is remote now. And as much as everyone is trying to be hopeful, thinking that this is working, like it's really not, (laughs) you know, like, like the impact that our team has on morale. And, you know, I don't even know really the morale of half the people on my team right now because it's through video visits and, and you don't get those like sighs that you see from the, you know, the other side of the office where you're like, okay, so-and-so is like feeling stressed right now. Like none of that's coming through. And I think that's the stuff that takes the toll on business, you know, not just our business, but any business It's just having that, that misconnect of not being in the office together. There's, that's the part that I'm really missing right now. What does your team look like now? We're small. There's eight of us. And there's a a network of over a thousand nurses that are on our platform nationwide, but the actual core team is only eight people and only four of us are actually full-time right now. So it's a very small team, 
And so when all of a sudden we have a giant partnership happen and we have a lot of consumers coming into our platform, you know, the two developers that we have are, are the ones keeping the lights on. You know, as we're ramping up more and more nurses, the two people on our medical team are the only ones who are taking care of the, the network of nurses and auditing their, their chats and onboarding new nurses and doing background checks and getting them all onboarded. You know, it's a small team and we're able to do it because we, we all believe in the mission, but I think the team's going to have to grow pretty, pretty quickly, pretty soon. And does everyone have a medical or like health tech background? No, the medical team does. And that's one of the things when I joined forces with our chief medical officer, uh, Dr. Igor Shimsky at the Harvard Innovation Lab, it, it really was, it was taking a, a company that you know, except for our chief nurse practitioner was mostly consumer facing marketing people or, or developers or myself, who has been focusing mostly on consumer products and tying that in with the medical side. So one of the first things Igor did when he joined us was say, you know, we need to put together a medical board of advisors that we can lean on so that it's not just him and our chief nurse practitioner, but a whole list of people to rely on. And so that has helped tremendously. I mean, we have people like Mark David Monk, who is a chief medical officer of Iora Health, uh, chief medical officer of CVS Health, Susan Boyle, who is the chief nursing officer of, of New York Presbyterian Hospital. You know, we have Dr. Julian Pham, who is a CMO of Rubicon MD. And one of the best nurses that I think are in the Boston area for, you know, spreading innovation among nurses is Rebecca Love. And so she's also on our board, uh, Dr. Yading Yu, who most people around uh, Boston know for being the founder of Triage, is also on our board. So it was just like, how do we add as many super smart people to our board as possible so that we're surrounded by people that have that deep expertise within medical? Yeah, that sounds like uh, an all-star team. Thank you. Am I right in that there's actually a nursing shortage in the U.S.? Yeah, there's definitely a shortage, but it's a it's a mismatch. It's my mm -hmm. opinion is there could always be more nurses right. anywhere, but there's a mismatch between nurses in the areas that need more nurses, and then nurses who are in areas that are actually having trouble getting hours and and jobs, and mm -hmm. especially right now during this outbreak, the number of primary care practices who have shut their doors is astounding. It's it's almost across the board. And we have an, an influx right now of nurses who are out of a job who can't get work right now, which just sounds absolutely crazy. But, you know, their expertise is primary care. Uh, mm -hmm. Their expertise is working in a primary care office, not in a hospital, not emergency medicine. And so there's a, there is a mismatch there, or maybe they're not located in an urban area where there's a big demand for nurses. And that's what we're seeing. But there's another side of the market as well, which is starting to be talked about more and more, which is burnout. You know, physician burnout and nurse burnout, the job that they do on a day-to-day on -day basis is really demanding. And a lot of them get burnt out. And so what we offer is an ability that they can work from home. They can work on their own schedule and it's chat, it's text chat. So they don't even need a quiet area and have to worry about echo when they're doing like a podcast. <laughs> it is just text so they can do it on their break. They can do it at night. They can do it while they're taking care of their kids. So it's a very appealing alternative and supplement to what they do during the day. And so we have almost no shortage of nurses who are joining our platform. 
And so that's allowed us to do two things is one, make sure that we have a very widespread of different expertise within nursing, but then also we have a very high bar of the type of nurse that, that we allow on our platform. And the most challenge that we have is going through the enormous list that we have and looking at their background and interviewing them and getting them on board. It's less about finding them. That's definitely not an issue that we have. So this month, we're talking with all the founders around product roadmap. And you already mentioned, you know, that your background is in consumer products, and that there was, you know, a learning curve that came with starting a healthcare product. I'm interested in, you know, some of those things or surprises, or major blockers that you've approached over the over the last year when it comes to building something in the healthcare space. Yeah, it's been a challenge. I would say there's two buckets of challenges that we've had to to learn. And and one is regulations, understanding, you know, even if you are following regulations to what you believe is is the essence of the regulation, it's not always what's enforced. And so we've had situations where we had partnerships where a very great, you know, well-known practice will want to be listed on our platform. And, you know, we'll, we'll add them to our platform and we're not able to charge them or make money whatsoever because there's anti-kickback laws. And so even if our nurse believes that a certain patient really needs to go to this one particular location because they have the expertise, we have to do that for free and there's no way to make money on that. And for very good reasons, you, you don't want to create an incentive where people are, are pushing patients to certain places because they're getting money back from that. But then on the flip side, it's very hard if you are a legit business who's doing it out of, you know, the nurse never knows what our business model is behind the scenes. So you would think if the nurse thinks that this is where they should go, we should be able to make money on that. But, you know, those are things that we've learned along the way that we can't build our business on lead gen, so to speak. There's ways of getting around it, but we never wanted to play in a, a gray area. So I'd say that was a big learning that we had to get through at one point. The other side is understanding the incentives, not of the people that we were talking to. And I think we got led down this quite a few times where the people at an organization would see the value in what we were doing and they would want to do business and they would see that there's a whole bunch of their patients that should be screened by a nurse so that they're getting the appropriate levels of care. But then as we would get closer to making a deal, they would find out that there really was an incentive from the company standpoint to have patients go to the appropriate level of care. So it would lower their volume. So, you know, having someone that goes to the emergency room for something that shouldn't be there when they did the numbers and they said, oh, this is great. Like all these patients won't actually be going to our emergency room. And then they would do the numbers and find out, well, that's going to hurt our bottom line. And where's the budget going to come from? And how do we make up for that loss? And those were the, some of the shocking things that we would see, but then also the people that we were talking to would also, you know, see, and I wouldn't say deflated, but like, okay, we need to refigure these types of things out so that these types of models make sense. Ultimately, what we found is a lot of the newer companies that are coming up. So I would even put ZocDoc in, into this bucket, but more of the digital health type of companies who are building a product, not using the old models of the old way, who are really incentivized for engaging patients all the time, keeping them engaged, making sure that they're making the appropriate levels of care that are really adding value to the patient. And I think those are the companies that we're now moving faster with. So whenever somebody has the incentive 
and a financial incentive, not just an ethical incentive, to make sure that that patient is being cared for in the appropriate way that's adding more value. So you shouldn't go to the emergency room, even though it costs more. If that company actually has the ability to say, you shouldn't go to the emergency room because it's also going to hurt our bottom line. We don't want you spending more money. We want you going to the appropriate level of care. Finding out which business models match that are the ones that we're selling into now. And, and those are the deals that are moving much quicker. So Nurse One One isn't your first startup. When it comes to you know planning and planning out what the product was going to be and how it was going to work and everything, what was your general approach and how was it influenced by your prior experiences? I knew this would take a long time. And I think a couple of experiences I've had, either we hit success right away or we didn't and struggled and eventually closed it. And then would, you know, three years after the company closed, look back and go, man, if we had just kept on going, the world changed. And when I started this company, I did it at the point where, you know, Runkeeper, my past company, just had an exit. And so I had the ability at that state to do basically what I wanted to do and spend as much time working and making sure I got it right. And that's what's benefited, I think, this company is having that ability to do that, surrounding myself with a team that is doing this for the long term, that is mission driven, that isn't looking for a quick hit, has allowed us to you know, spend those first few years before we launched making sure that we're building the right product, making sure that there is a demand for this type of product, that patients love this product once they use it, making sure that there's the other side of the marketplace with the nurses. Like, is this something that they see value in? Is this something that they want to be a part of? Making sure that we got those things right took a lot of time. And so when we launched, I knew we were launching a great product that hit both of those parts of the market. But our next learning was to learn how do we fit into the existing ecosystem of healthcare. There's zero, anybody that I've ever talked to that said that that would be quick and easy, right? Like that is almost the challenge within healthcare is understanding the incentives within the market. And so I knew that this would take a long time. And so we have, some of the things I did is I never raised a lot of money at the beginning. In fact, we bootstrapped this for a long time. When we did raise money, it was from people who understood the marketplace. So there's a lot of doctors who invested in what we were doing, investors who invest in healthcare because they knew the challenges that we're facing in front of us. And so those are some of the things that it took some learning from other battles of starting companies to learn. Uh, but I think that has gotten us to this point. And now we're at a point where we haven't raised a lot of money. We're seeing a lot of traction scale. And we're starting to get a lot of people noticing us within the industry. And now we're at that point where we can probably step on the gas more and start to, to scale and, and take in external money to grow the team the proper way. So from day one, when you start working on the new product, who was the team then? Did, did you have developer on the team? What was your process like in terms of planning and figuring out what the features would be? So on day one, it was my co-founder, Kim Liner, who is a pediatric nurse practitioner, our friend who helped us with, mm -hmm. with our daughter. She really led the charge of building a team of other nurses that we could reach out to, to ask questions and get their sense of this problem that we were going after and see what were the themes that we were hearing on that side of the market. The other ones that I reached out to were developers and a designer that I worked with in the past. And I basically said, you know, this is the idea I want to build. 
know, everybody needs to go get a day job because we're not going to run, you know, super fast and raise money and be able to pay you. So everybody go get a day job and we'll do this nights and weekends. And that's basically what the team did. Uh, and that allowed us to focus on the consumer side. You know, I pulled in a marketing person fairly early to start doing ads on, on Google to, you know, quickly get that traction before we built up the brand, before we could get word of mouth and all the other channels, but to at least get patients flowing in the door so that we can learn, you know, what are the things that they wanted? Did they want to talk to a nurse? What if we build a bot? What if we have a chat bot that patients chat to? Will they engage with that? Maybe we should do doctors, you know, other opportunities would come along the way, such as like, you know, prescriptions. You know, we started to see the same thing that Roman and hims and hers are seeing where people just wanted prescriptions. And that fell back to Kim, our nurse, our chief nurse practitioner. And I said, you know, is this something we want to do? And it was just something that felt uneasy to us. And mm-hmm. so we decided to go a, a different route and to not go down that path. And so in the early days, it was figuring out, is there a demand here? What is the demand? Who are these people who are coming to us on both sides of the market? And just really spending the time iterating on that for a while. And you did that iteration in actual working product that you were driving users to or prototypes or interviews or a combination of all of the above? It was a combination of all the above. I would say on the nursing side, we did a lot of interviews at the very beginning before we had a product. On the patient side, we would do interviews, but most of those interviews were people who had signed up for our product. So Mm -hmm. we would build channels, have a, a product. We would have Kim on one side chatting with patients making sure that they were, were getting value out of it. They would, after the chat, give us feedback. We would put up paywalls to see if they would pay, you know, and, and most of those paywalls weren't actually recording their credit card number, right? Like they would put in their credit card. We wouldn't save it or anything like that. And then afterwards we would be like, actually, this is a free chat. You can't just get charged for this. And so we were doing a whole lot of stuff. Wow. I, I have never heard of that before. <laughs> well, I like that. You know, when it comes down to it, it's like the, I forget even what we were charging back then. I think we charged everywhere from a dollar to $30 and everything in between. None of the money that we were trying to charge at that point was going to make or break us, right? It was the feedback of whether or not they were willing to pay. And if they felt like they just paid and had this chat with a live nurse, would they feel like that was worth it to them? And so it was the feedback that was more important. And I never wanted to say to our developer, okay, go out and build a payment system where we're, we're taking credit cards and charging people because I had no idea if that at that point would even be something that we would continue to do. And so we did a lot of testing. We had at one point, Kim pretend she was a bot <laughs> and we changed her name. These are great. We changed her name to like, I uh, forget the, the branding that we used for that one, but something bot. And I said, you know, talk a little bit more robotic, but, you know, ask specific questions and let's see if they engaged. We saw like zero people engage with her more than three questions if they thought she was a bot and stuff like that. So it was a whole lot of testing, different brands. I I never wanted to launch the actual brand we would go with until we figured out what it was. I needed it to match the core of what we saw. And over and over, we saw that the core of what we were building was the nurse and we saw that in a couple of places. One, this is the satisfaction that people are getting from the product, the title of the person that they were willing to talk to with that part of the journey of healthcare was a nurse. But then we also saw in the acquisition channels, people would click on our ads when they said a nurse rather than doctor. 
And that's when we started doing a lot of the customer interviews on the patient side, trying to dive into that. Like, why did we see more people signing up when they saw a nurse? Why do we see more people signing up when we removed prescriptions? Why do we see even more people signing up when we said you won't get a prescription? And what we found is that people were scared. They weren't looking for care. They didn't know where they should turn to for care. They were looking for that trusted person to help them decide where to navigate to care later on. And so the doctor in their minds was somebody who's going to treat them. If they saw a prescription, that was a place where you go and you get treatment. And so what we learned really quickly on is that the nurse was the brand that we needed to have in our name. And, and that's where we came up with Nurse One from. So in those early days, then it sounds like you were really responding in tight feedback cycles to what you were learning. How far were you planning in advance? Oh, you know, next month we're going to do this month after that, we're going to do that. Or was it something different? The planning that we were doing that was far out was more, if we figure out this first initial aspect, you know, where can we go with this? And I think that the more we did that, the more trouble we got ourselves into because we would start to build the product with those sort of like offshoots in mind. And then we would make some sort of discovery, you know, in the short term that had nothing to do with those offshoots. And then there was still like remnants of code, you know, remnants of a model that we were building that we never built. You know, it's almost like the highways in, in Boston where you're driving, uh, coming out of Boston and suddenly there's like an off ramp that just like shoots out into the air. And, and it's because at some point they were like, all right, we'll have this giant highway that goes across Cambridge and in the air. And that was never built. But now you're left with a highway with these like off ramps. And our product even today still has a couple of those still in it that just don't make any sense. And it's because we started planning too far ahead and we were like, oh, at some point this is what we'll be doing. And it just never made sense. Our learnings in the short term always drove what we would do next. And, and anything after that, it was just a big distraction for us. Mm -hmm. What about when it comes to the regulations and things like HIPAA compliance? How far out do you need to be planning with those <laughs> kinds of milestones? I'll tell you a story. We had a pilot lined up with quite a few healthcare companies. And it was the day before we launched I had sent over to our, our legal team the agreements that we we were talking about doing. And I was actually, I'm, I'm a coach to my son's baseball team. And I'll never, never forget this moment. I'm walking with a bag over my shoulder with the equipment, walking to the game. I have my assistant coach there with her son, you know, saying hi. And my phone rings and it's the lawyer. And I'm like, why is my lawyer calling me at night? I'm like, okay, I'll answer it. And so I answer it. And she's like, Mike, do not launch this thing that you're about to do. And, you know, that was, that was when I learned I can't, even if the medical team believes that this is following the letter of the law, even if ethically this makes sense, even if our partners believe that this should be completely fine, I still need to send it ahead of time before we do all that work to the legal team, because there's always some case somewhere that matched what we were doing, that no matter how much you plead to a judge, they're not going to understand the nuances. And so I've always said, the big thing that we are trying to do here is not to push regulation. You know, we can fall completely in right with regulation. Our big thing is that we're trying to get nurses to help people before they make the wrong decision. That's our big assumption. So anything that's gray area, we're going to stay away from. We're not even going to push it. Even if it's not defined, let's stay away. That's not what we're trying to, to prove here. 
And so I always now loop in, even in the idea stage, an email I'll send over to the lawyer and say, hey, <laughs> is there anything we should be thinking about when we do this? And you know, and it's helped us a few times where what we're thinking about doing now in the next like three or four months, I send her an email. This is what we're thinking about doing. She comes back. She goes, great, perfectly okay. This little thing over here, if you ever start to head that way, send me an email because there's some there's some gotchas over there. And so that's helped. So in healthcare, you definitely have to have a lawyer that you can just send an email off to and get some feedback early. How did you find that person? So the corporate lawyer that we have today, I've actually used her in quite a few companies. Uh, Jeanette McLaughlin, uh, she's at Art Fox. The firm that she's at now has a whole bunch of different expertise and they have an entire team in healthcare and in telemedicine. And so through that network at Art Fox, we've been able to be connected with people who can help us. There's different types of regulations. We have nurses on our platform who are 1099. So there's an entire team at that law firm that we reach out to for those types of questions. And everything is state by state in healthcare and everything with employment law is also state by state. So it's great to have a big firm. It is expensive. <laughs> that That is what, what comes with this space is, you know, once we got to the point where we were launching, we did raise a small pre-seed round and that has helped us reach out to these lawyers and send an email that's going to cost a couple hundred dollars just to ask a question, but it's worth it in the long term. So how has your planning and your approach to roadmap changed since, you know, those early days? You know, it the core of our product is the same. Mm-hmm. And I think every once in a while we have this like joke on our Slack where we just throw up this like pivot giphy. <laughs> and it's never a pivot that's away from the core of our product. And that's why it's always a quick pivot because it's more of who we're partnering with. It's more of just how we're charging for the product. Those seem to be the things that change. I would say in the early days, it was more about we're going to get a whole bunch of patients on our platform and then healthcare organizations will want access to those patients. We're thinking less that way these days than, than we have in the past. There's purely an opportunity there as we have more partnerships that you know, we have a, a dermatologist on the platform and then that patient should be seen by a primary care provider you know, how do we get that patient to go to our other primary care provider who's also on the platform? Like that's something that at some point will will open up. And then we are a place where, you know, there is value of getting new patients on, on our platform, but we've sort of moved away from that. And the more we've gone towards value-based care, right? And this is something that we knew from the very beginning, you know, the pure use case was we're trying to get patients so that they don't go to the emergency room and they shouldn't have to. And, you know, this value-based care is something that's coming within healthcare, where you can find organizations that are incentivized to make sure that patients don't go to places where they shouldn't. And I think a lot of the new digital health companies that are emerging are also incentivized the same way. All, maybe not because value-based care is here, but everyone's expecting it to happen. So what we're finding is the players that we're now talking to more often are digital health companies who see value in making sure that their patients don't utilize expensive resources, whether that's their resources or somebody else's resources that are expensive to their bottom line. That's where we come in. And there's been nothing that's been proven better than a nurse that filtering patients away from going to things that they shouldn't go to, to educating them, making sure that they're making the appropriate decision, that they're empowered to make the right choice for themselves. 
And when you look at digital healthcare today, the thing that is missing that's still in traditional healthcare are these nurses. And so if you ever go to the doctor's office or you're in the hospital, you're always interfacing with a, a nurse way more than you are with, with a physician. But when you look at a lot of digital health platforms that are being built right now, you know, whether it's something that's reading your insights or a, a device maker who built an app so that their device has more value, what's missing is that personal touch, that caring touch of a nurse. And I think that's what we're seeing now is that we can make those partnerships and add that personal touch, that caring, empathetic touch to their products so that they see higher engagement, that the LTV eventually becomes higher for these patients, and they just have a much better experience overall for the patient. Do you have any uh, predictions of how the digital health space might be transformed from the current pandemic, you know, outside of Nurse 11? Yeah, it's hard to say. I'm not overly optimistic that this outbreak is going to be good for the healthcare industry going forward. I think there's a lot of people saying that, you know, this is what's going to to rush the disruption of healthcare, that we're always going to have telemedicine, that suddenly, you know, all the existing players are going to have to catch up because of this. I'm actually not very optimistic. I, I think this is actually very bad overall for healthcare. I think you're going to have insurance companies filing bankruptcy, large hospital systems filing bankruptcy. You know, we're already seeing primary care shutting down. I think the entire industry is just being gutted right now. You know, we're seeing a large number of professionals that that are getting sick from this. And I don't have a crystal ball to understand how it's going to change the healthcare landscape. I think this is the worst case scenario, right? It's like we we saw a problem before this happened that we were fixing. This outbreak really forced it to the limelight that there is no place to turn to when you're sick and you don't know what to do and you're scared. But right now, there is still no place to turn to. So even if a nurse says you should call your doctor, most doctor's offices are closed right now. And so we have to send them to telemedicine, which a lot of video visit platforms exist, but they, they still you know are powered by a doctor on the other side. And, and there's only a limited number of them or they're expensive. And you know, a large, large number of people don't have insurance. So even though insurance are waiving co-pays on, on video visits, a lot of people still don't have insurance. And so I don't know what's going to happen after this. I do know as long as we keep focusing on the patient, uh, we keep making sure that the nurses who are powering this platform are being listened to and that we're making the updates that they think matter, I think we'll do okay. And I just hope that anybody else that's out there in this this healthcare industry that's trying to help patients can also figure their way through this. For you, what have been sort of the product metrics that you've kept an eye on, or maybe that's changed over time, but which of those measures are you looking at to gauge kind of health and growth? I think two of them that are really important to us are an NPS score that we're collecting. We recently brought on board an amazing marketer to our team who, before working on this, she was at Uber. So Bailey Carroll came on as our marketing director. First thing she said was we need to put in an NPS score survey after the experience. That has been something that is new. Now, I think we're measuring the satisfaction in different ways. So anytime we email someone who's gone through Nurse 11, we always make sure that the email that we send them isn't one of these like no reply emails, right? So We've always had a large number of patients that email us after the experience. 
And some of them are really good and some of them have concerns. You can tell where they were confused. And we've always used that as sort of a way to make the product better. That's always one of our metrics is just really the satisfaction. But now that we're seeing this NPS score, that's at 90%, sometimes 95%. That is really driving a lot of decisions. Now, every time we roll out something, we're looking to make sure that that NPS score still stays high. So that's the big one. Number of chats through different channels is an important one. So we know that patients are enjoying the experience, but what we're always looking after is how do we increase the access to care? And in order to do that, we have to find the channels that bring the most number of patients to us. So anytime we open up a channel, it's always seeing how many patients are coming in, how many of those patients from that channel are having a chat with a nurse, and then how many of them come back. Those are really the the metrics that we look at the most. So I'm curious, you started in stealth mode. Had your previous companies also started in stealth mode? You know, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I think the one company we had, we did officially launch, we launched with a different brand name just to try it in a different market. Mm-hmm. And I think we did that once before. But most of the time, and I think this is sort of what most entrepreneurs have, is that you launch and nobody cares anyways. <laughs> so you still have you still have this long period of time where even if you like reach out to every single person in the press and you know tweet as much as possible about your product you're still in stealth mode by default because nobody cares and i think for most entrepreneurs it's a good thing because before you get any type of press or usage you can figure out one what the product is but then mostly i think it's the messaging of your product because it's really hard to change what it is that you're telling the world your product does once they hear about it. And that's the reason why when I was launching this, I wanted to launch under different brands because we hadn't figured out really what the messaging was. There was definitely different partnership areas that we were looking at that we wanted to dive into. And the messaging of our product would have to change based off of those different places that we would go. And and that's why I did it. I felt like if I launched at the beginning and made some sort of noise that we would get press and that there would be at least enough remnants out in the internet that when people came to us, they would see those old articles and be like, oh, you guys do this, when in fact our new messaging is nothing Mm -hmm. about that type of thing. I think it was just a unique situation that I kind of wanted to avoid. So now that you're public, how open are you about what your product plans are with your customers, with, with people, or do you keep that close internal only? We are very open. Uh, I think what we're doing is we're learning that we can't have these like secret long-term ambitions to do X, Y, and Z. You know, when you look at the number of people in this country, just in the United States, and and this problem is literally universal of, of every other country as we're seeing during this outbreak, but, you know, the number of people who go to the emergency room every single year, and there was a UPenn study that dove in and proved this, that half of the people in an emergency room at any given time have been searching online an entire week before they went to their visit to the emergency room. And they were searching about the symptoms and the questions that they had about their concern. And so half of all those visits should have been avoided and they could have been intervened. They could have been diverted somewhere else. And that's a nurse that can easily do that. And what we see is about one in five of the chats that we have on Nurse 1-1 have some evidence that this was a patient who was about to go to the emergency room 
And only about 3% of the time do the nurses actually think that this person should go to the emergency room for their condition. So we see an enormous number of ER diversions on Nurse 11. You know, that, if you look at all of the emergency room visits in the United States, you think half of them should be diverted. And then you look at the fact that it costs almost $1,400 every time someone goes to an emergency room. That's $100 billion a year just in the United States of unnecessary costs that people are going to the emergency room. So there really is nothing more that we're doing that needs to be done. It's just building out more partnerships, getting in front of more patients with the product that we have today. Mm -hmm. And that product can grow within a very large market. I mean, this is not just a small market that we're trying to figure out, like, what do we do next in order to grow that total addressable market? Like, this is a very big market. And there really aren't that many other players that are fully addressing it the same way we are. So there's nothing secret about what we're doing next because there really isn't nothing that we're doing next. It's doing what we're doing, just building more of these partnerships and getting in front of more patients. I think that's really the only thing that's on our roadmap. Are there things that you need to do? Like when you're talking to ZocDoc or someone like it, it's like, oh, we need you to integrate into the website this way. And when those things come up, how do you approach making promises and establishing timelines. Mm, special requests. <laughs> yes, yeah, spe- special requests always come in. You know, I-, I think that's the state that we are in healthcare. And if there's a there's a crystal ball that it's not even forecasting what's happening, it's, it's clearly happening now. The confusion that somebody has of whether or not I should go to the emergency room or not is a big one, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the one that we're mostly focused on. But now there's a whole bunch of alternatives, right? Before, there was never urgent care. And now there's an urgent care office probably across the street from each other on every corner. There's primary care that you can still reach out to. There are community clinics. Now you start looking at digital health, right? There's video visit. There's concierge medicine that you can go to. There's different tools that will use AI to analyze a whole bunch of different things. So the confusion that's out there of what services could be added onto our platform is endless. And so when we go into these partnerships, those are the things that we're building our platform to be able to adjust for is one partner says, you know, this is the type of thing that we're, we're screening our patients for. And, and these are the things that we want these patients to go towards when it's appropriate. And we're building the system now so that we can easily have the nurses recommend every patient equally Uh, without the incentive of making sure that they're going to one product versus another, but building our platform so that it can be personalized and customized for each one of these different partnerships. And at the end of the day, it's still the same model. It's the nurse having a conversation with a patient, getting to know them, understanding their circumstance, and then influencing them to do the right thing. And then it's just these integrations that we're adding on at the end that you know, if somebody needs to be seen by a video visit, it's which video visit is going to be presented at that point. Those are really the customizations that, that we're doing today. And do you say, okay, this is going to be done in April or is it, you know, is it going to be done in June? Or do you give promises like that? In terms of how long it takes? Well, yeah. the inbound that we got from ZocDoc happened, I think, a week and a day before we launched. Mm-hmm. So going from not having a partnership just like that, but having it in mind. We had a few players that we were talking to that we were going to do this type of integration with. They came in and it was you know Thursday that we got the messages from them. Friday, we had the call, worked over that weekend building the product, didn't even have an agreement with them. We were just like, 
you know, the world is falling apart. My kids just got told that they can't go to school anymore. You know, we decided earlier that week to not go to the office anymore. We're all remote and we're building this thing for a company that we have no agreement with or even had discussed what this would look like from a business standpoint. We're just building it. And that Friday, that next Friday is when we launched it. So we move quick. When it makes sense, we can move quick. And so we don't necessarily promise, but we say we're looking for partners that when they go, yes, let's do this, that we're talking, you know, is it Friday we're launching or is it Saturday? Mm -hmm. You know, if it is a player, and this is some of our lessons learned, if it's somebody that says, great, this is great, we want to do this, let's schedule a meeting next month with the head of XYZ. (laughs) And after that, we're going to have another meeting with this other department. Those are the ones that I think we've learned that those never end. Those will continue forever until eventually somebody quits their job and goes, works for somebody else. And then suddenly, you know, you're stuck in a company without anybody that remembers why you were originally talking to them. Right. And so that's how quickly we move and we look for partners who can move quick as well. That's a really smart approach, given that I imagine a lot of organizations in the healthcare space are (laughs) slow moving and will do that. And so recognizing that and, uh, and adjusting who you're talking to and not wasting time seems really smart. Yeah, it's hard. And I, this is advice to anybody who's getting into healthcare. It's really easy to get fooled because the person you're talking to wants to move fast. That was something that I think probably took us longer to learn than I would like to admit. You know, you can be in a room that someone's like, I really want this thing to happen, but there's this other department that has their finger on this one aspect of this that you need to go talk to. And you would even talk to the other department and be like, this is great, but man, I can't pull the trigger on this yet because you need to talk to somewhere else. Everybody in those large organizations is frustrated with the process. And so it's really easy to be like, well, they'll move this thing through because they all love this product. But at the end of the day, they can't. Like A lot of these organizations are just locked into these really long sales processes. And it's just really important to understand the incentive of the organization and not of the people you're talking to. So, Michael, thanks for uh, not only joining us on this episode, but, uh, you know, this whole series where we're going to come back and visit with you again and see how things have changed and discuss a different topic next time. Yeah. So thanks for joining us on this journey. Thanks for having me. People can submit questions to us along the way, you know, and we'll, we'll, we'll ask them to you next time. People can do that at host at giantrobots.fm. But if along the way people want to get in touch directly with you or follow along with Nurse11, what's the best places for them to do that? I think on Twitter is a good one. So I'm Michael Shealy, just my name, big, long, I think 14 character Twitter handle, Michael Shealy on Twitter. <laughs> Wonderful. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at host at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at Lindsay3D. And me on Twitter at CPytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.